good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bibles today, Romans chapter 5 is where we're going to be. We're going to finish out this uh, really just astonishing section of Scripture that deals with the justification that Jesus has provided for us. And we're going to finish it out in the way that obviously the Apostle Paul wrote to us. And it is a really amazing section of Scripture. It is a section of Scripture that reminds us of who we once were, all the while reminding us of who we are now. It is a section of Scripture that reminds us that through the finished work of Jesus Christ, through His living a perfect, sinless, spotless life, becoming incarnate, dwelling here, fulfilling all righteousness, and then laying down His life for His people, that He would be buried, that He was raised from the dead, that that great work is finished, but our Lord Jesus is not doing nothing now. Instead, it is quite clear that He is still at work. He is still interceding. He is still working on our behalf. And so what I'd like to do this morning is hopefully walk us through this text, reminding us of who we once were and who we are now, and also reminding us of the great work of Jesus in his incarnation and the work that he still continues to this day for one ultimate end. And that ultimate end is one that we speak of quite regularly. We say it often in this form, soli Deo Gloria. And really what we find at the conclusion of this passage, this passage that deals with we, if you look through Romans chapter 5, you will see the constant refrain of we. We have been justified. We have been saved. We have been reconciled. But there is always one great and glorious end, and it is the glory of our great God and King. And so with that said, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Romans chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 1 and bring ourselves all the way through verse 11 to just remind us of this blessed passage. Brothers and sisters, I would remind you that what you have before you is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Indeed, it is truth with no mixture of error. It is the word of God. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who he has given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Let's pray together. Father, there are benefits in this passage that are far too lofty for us. And yet, Lord, we would be fools not to say that they are ours. Lord, we know that if we have been justified by faith, we have peace with you. We have been reconciled to you. Lord, we know that we have been, if we have been justified through Jesus' blood, then, Lord, justification is true and rich, and that it does provide rescue from the wrath of God. 
And so, Father, as we come today, would you lead us to the conclusion of this blessed section? Would you lead us to rejoice in God through Jesus Christ? For, Lord, that is our ultimate end. It is our greatest of delights and joys. Lord, would you steal our gaze from any lesser delight? Would you remind us of the hope of the gospel and show us that it dazzles more than anything this world has to offer? It is in the name of Jesus and through him we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So this morning, what I'd like to do is really walk through this section of Scripture. And some of this is going to be in way of reminder. Because the very first verse that we're going to deal with today is verse 9. And verse 9 reads this, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood. And I would imagine that if you have been with us and if you've been hearing the preaching of Romans, then you're going to be very familiar with this word, justified. And we're going to come to it once again, and I think it's vitally important that we are ever constantly reminded of this, of what that justification actually means. Because as we walk through this, it seems as though the foundation of Paul's argument as we press forward from this very verse is the fact that we have been justified, and here he uses a bit of different language. It's not justification by faith that he makes reference to, it's justification by Jesus' blood. And so as we approach this, it seems as though this foundation is the one that is most necessary for us to understand. And so what we must do is reach a little bit further back into the book of Romans and then apply Romans 5.1 to properly understand this. But if I could, for just a moment, remind us of the depth of the word justified. What does it mean that we have been justified by his blood? What does it mean, this, this word that we use so regularly, this word that we have spent so much time and dedication to, brothers and sisters, if there is one word that needs to be written on your heart, it is the word justified. And so just for a moment, I would like to remind you to perhaps fill that cup full once again. If we go back to Romans chapter 3, it seems quite clear that Paul has spent a great deal of time defining this word for us. And he has defined it as such that the justification of God is the redemption first and foremost that is in Christ Jesus. We spent a great deal of time dealing with this concept of redemption, that there would be a clean animal that would ultimately die for an unclean animal, that there would be one who would redeem us from the curse of the law, that there would be one who would redeem us from that entering in of the firstborn to be offered as a sacrifice, that every second, third, fourth, fifth born had to have one that was born before him, and that one had to pay a fee. There needed to be redemption. There needed to be a means of rescue from various things that had us as slaves. We needed to be redeemed from the curse of the law. We needed to be redeemed from slavery to sin. We needed to be redeemed from the wrath of God, as it were. And what we have in this very clear passage of Scripture is that that redemption took place first and foremost and only by the blood of Jesus Christ. We have redemption through His blood. And not only do we have redemption through his blood, it seems as though the primary point that Paul is dealing with today is the concept of propitiation. And that is the word that we must really grasp this day. What does it mean in justification that Jesus is my propitiation, that Jesus has satisfied the wrath of God for me? Brothers and sisters, hear me. Propitiation, when it comes through the Lord Jesus Christ, is a complete propitiation. It is a complete satisfaction of God's wrath. When we deal and when we speak about God's wrath for sinners, and then we consider Jesus' propitiation, it means that the wrath of God has been completely satisfied. Now, when we say that, you perhaps always struggle with this internal reality that there's still sin in me, and if there's still sin in me, then there must still be wrath due me. And any wrath that you would comprehend that you are due because of your sin, that is the very wrath that Jesus satisfied on the cross. Any wrath that you might consider is due you. 
Brothers and sisters, immediately in that moment, realize that the wrath that you say, this is my wrath, say yes and amen, but Jesus paid for it in full on his cross. He has indeed reconciled us. He has indeed propitiated the wrath of God. And so when we come to this particular text, when we deal with this language of since therefore we have been justified by his blood, essentially what we are saying is all of the beautiful realities that we find in Romans chapter 3, verse 23 through 25, all of those are actually mine. Because what we see in this text is not just looking at the accomplishment of it. Instead, it seems as though what Paul is doing is taking these very distinct themes of Jesus Christ accomplishing redemption, accomplishing justification, and then carrying it forward in its application. And it is very important that we understand this. I imagine that all of us, if we say that we, be- we love Christ, we trust in him, we know that he is mighty to save, we never have difficulty looking at Romans chapter 3, verse 23. Let's read this together. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. I will confess to you, dear brothers and sisters, I never struggle with Jesus' ability to accomplish redemption. It is never something that I deal with. When I understand and when I see that Jesus is the incarnate Son of God, that he condescended from heaven to dwell with us and be without sin, yet made like us in every way, it is no surprise to me at all that Jesus is able to accomplish all that is necessary for my redemption. It is not surprising. He is the omnipotent one. He is the truly God, truly man, rescuer of all those who have faith in him. My biggest difficulty is not realizing that Jesus is able to accomplish all that is necessary. My biggest difficulty is believing that it's applied to me. I I need to know if, if all of those things are true, if I have been justified, if Jesus has accomplished all that is necessary for justification, and then I look back up at Romans chapter 5 verse 1, and he tells me that all the benefits of justification come to those who have believed on Christ by faith, And then he comes down in verse 9 to reiterate this to us and says that since therefore exact same sentence structure, we have been justified by his blood. Essentially what we find in this very simple text is that saying we are saved, we are justified by faith alone is synonymous with saying we are saved by Christ alone. When we say that we have been justified by faith, We are essentially, and what Paul is arguing for us, is that verse 1 of chapter 5 is reaching all the way back into chapter 3 and saying, if you want all of those glorious benefits, look to Jesus by faith and they will actually be yours. Because brothers and sisters, Christ is mighty to save. That is never in question. What I find myself needing to be reminded of is Christ is willing to save me. He's willing to rescue ruined sinners. And even in this text, he reminds us that in this very language, he came, his love came to me while I was yet a sinner. His justification came to me while I was yet a sinner. Consider this for a moment. We have this very clear pronouncement of God's love for us and that while we were yet sinners. But then there is this very clear connecting point from verse 8 to verse 9. It says in verse 8, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us and then immediately flows in to the application of that death. In verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, what great confidence does the Christian have to know that Jesus is able to save him to the uttermost? Oh, but the greatest of confidence is this, that he loved me while I was yet a sinner, that he died for me while I was yet wicked, while I was a sinner. 
And since he has died for me, I have this great freedom. And we'll see that freedom here in a moment. But it is first and foremost this reality that Jesus' love originates. His sacrificial death originates while I was an enemy. I did not deserve it. I had not merited it. And when I look at Romans 3, I can say yes and amen. But then I look at Romans 5, 9 and I say, really, me? I'm going to be justified by his blood? All of that that we read in Romans 3, that's for me? And Paul would look and say, yes, because while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. While you were yet a sinner, Christ paid the debt to redeem you from the curse of the law. While you were yet a sinner, he justified, he propitiated, he satisfied God's wrath, particularly for his people. That's why you have this refrain through Romans 5 of this we. Therefore, since we have been justified through him, we have obtained access by faith and we rejoice. This language of we, brothers and sisters, if you have trusted in Christ by faith, then this we is you. You have been brought into this glorious relationship. And so you can say, yes, Jesus sent his beloved son to die in my place, to accomplish all that was necessary for salvation. And when he executed its, its application to me, I was still yet a sinner. He interposed, as it were, his precious blood. And I think of that great hymn, and rightly can we sing, that Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He who rescued me from danger interposed his precious blood. But this is the state in which we were when Christ came to reconcile us to himself. When Christ came to justify us, we were those who had merited to ourselves wrath and fury. And yet Jesus steps in. He interposes, he protects us, he shields us. He is our bulwark never failing and he protects us with his blood. He has accomplished all that is necessary for redemption. But brothers and sisters, if you look back at verse one and you say, I've trusted in Christ by faith, know this, essentially what you were saying is that I have been justified by his blood. He is my great shield and my great bulwark. He is the one who protects me. He is the one who has shielded me and shielded me completely. Perhaps it does call to mind that great ark that Noah sat in, wave after wave beating upon it. You can imagine still feeling the rumblings of the furious, furious storm outside, and yet how safe he was. Brothers and sisters, it is true that we live in a world where there is still great sin, trespass, and iniquity, and perhaps you feel that not only externally, but internally. Regardless, he is still a perfect bulwark. His blood is still able to cleanse you to the uttermost. He is still your propitiation. You have been justified by his blood. But one thing that we note from this, and it seems as though the major argument that Paul is making is not just bringing to mind who you were when Jesus justified you by his blood, but instead the radical change that takes place through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Because if you notice the sentence structure here in verse 9, it says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood much more, much more, What do you mean much more? What else is there much more? He shielded me with his blood. He satisfied the wrath of God. He's reconciled me to himself much more. How can there be more? 
But it is indeed a, a much more. And going on in the text, it says, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And there are two, really three things that we need to consider in regard to this. Because the question should be, well, why much more? How is there much more? He came to me while I was yet a sinner, but the idea of him dying for me while I was yet a sinner, that makes sense because he's saved me from the wrath of God. He's justified me. But then it goes forward and say, much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. And there are really three major thoughts that I want to work through here. First, the atoning work of Jesus has been accomplished. The greatest of the work has been done. Brothers and sisters, consider this for just a moment. If Jesus was willing to condescend, to leave heaven's praises, to come and be born in a feeding trough, to fulfill all righteousness, to be without sin in every capacity, but mind you, tempted in every way just as we were, if he was willing to be tempted in the wilderness for 40 days, if he was willing to be heralded as the king like David and then immediately after that be crucified and nailed to a tree, ultimately laying down his life for his people, then being buried three days, conquering death underfoot and being raised, will he not apply it? Will he not apply the work that he finished? Will he not take all that he accomplished, all that he had merited in his life and in his death and in his resurrection, and will he not give it to his people? Do you not remember John 10? What does Jesus say? I lay down my life for my sheep, and I will lose not one. You see, the beauty of this is much more, indeed much more, because now that he has finished the greater work, will he not, will he not apply it to us and not only apply it to us but continue to save us from that wrath of God to come so not only do we see that the atoning work of Jesus has ultimately been accomplished but secondly we see that great work has been applied to me through faith in Jesus Christ and so it's not just the accomplishment but it's the application since Jesus has done this great work and it has been applied to me then I can say much more I have been saved much more shall I be and will I be saved because God's salvation provided in Jesus Christ is a complete salvation. And lastly, the means, the benefits of being justified by Jesus' death are indeed mine. And one of the things that perhaps is most important for us to note here is that the much more aspect here is not just in the fact that Jesus has completed the greater work, but he has already applied it at conversion. As we read in our introduction this morning in our call to worship, this great reality that what I once was, the old is gone and the new has come. Hear me, saint. You are no longer yet a sinner. When I think about this, this concept of the life of the Christian, Luther said it best that I am a sinner all the while a saint. How much more so if Jesus died for you while you, will, you were yet a sinner, will he save you now that he has sanctified you with his blood? I need to know that because Jesus gave me his life while I was yet a sinner, will he now withhold it from me now that he has applied his blood? No. Instead, it seems as though he is sanctified. He has done a great work so that much more will he save me from the wrath of God because I am no longer just an ungodly, wicked, weak sinner that is at enmity with him. Instead, I have been reconciled by his blood. And if I have been reconciled by his blood, then just like the instruments in the tabernacle, I must be called holy. Not only must I be called holy, but I must be treated as such. And I will confess to you the folly of this. I know my inward man, and I know that you know yours. But here's the great declaration of justification by faith alone. You have been justified with his blood. You were justified with his blood while you were yet a sinner. And today you stand here, if you be in Christ, not just a sinner, but you are a saint. 
You've been consecrated with his blood. You have been made holy with his blood. And if you have been made holy, then brothers and sisters, we can safely say that God who always does what is right will treat us as such. That while I know, I know that I should be treated as a sinner. But hear me, it is not a virtue for me to go on saying that I should be treated as a sinner. It is not. It is looking at Christ's cross and assuming it far weaker than it actually is. It is not a Christian virtue to say, I'm a sinner and deserve death and fury from God. It is not. The Christian virtue is saying, yes, I deserve death and fury, but I will have none of it for Christ drank it all. It is a dependence upon him. It is rejoicing in him. It is knowing that, yes, you deserve wrath and fury, but it is not yours because Christ drank the cup to the dregs. There is nothing left. And so since I have been justified by his blood much more, indeed much more now that I am no longer just a sinner, but I am a saint, much more now that Jesus has finished his, that Jesus has accomplished his death, burial, and resurrection, much more will I be saved. What will I be saved from? I'll be saved from the wrath of God. For some reason, it seems in our day that we are saved from anything but the wrath of God. We can be saved from any concept, any difficulty, any trial in life. Brothers and sisters, let me explain something to you. The scriptures are abundantly clear what we are saved from. We are saved from the wrath of God, and that is indeed the ultimate salvation. Anyone who would interject any form of salvation that is not salvation from the wrath of God demeans the cross of Christ. We are saved from the wrath of God. You have, as it were, merited to yourself wrath and fury. And what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross was to stand in, to interpose his precious blood that not a single drop of God's wrath would come to you. What are you saved from? We are saved from the wrath of God. And we must never forget that. God sent his beloved son to stand in the gap, to intercede, to mediate between himself and mere men. And Jesus is our perfect mediator. He was able to save us to the uttermost. He was able to rescue us from the wrath of God. But it seems as though this text is indicating a future wrath. And so the very first thing we must understand is that we are first and foremost saved from the wrath of God in life. I would point your attention back to Romans chapter 1, verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. Brothers and sisters, you are not these men. If you be in Christ, you are not these men. Because God in his infinite grace has opened your eyes. He has destroyed any suppression that you might have by the power of the Spirit of God and you have been ransomed. You are no longer yet a sinner. Instead, you have been declared to be a saint by the blood of Jesus Christ. He has saved you from the wrath of God in this life. That means that the previous verses that we have read through, that we have spoken of, that you do not suffer under the wrath of God is indeed a reality. Yes, his disciplining hand comes to you. Yes, you will go through various trials and tribulation, but you must always know that they come from your good father. It is not a wrathful hand. It is a disciplining hand and a good hand at that. And so we see that we are saved from God, saved from the wrath of God in this present life. But here it seems that he is paying most, most closely atten attention to that we will be saved, that we shall be saved from the wrath of God. And there are three that I have in mind. Three perhaps in moments of doubt that we might fear, that we might quake a bit, that the wrath of God would indeed come for us. The very first is at our own death. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ saved you from the wrath of God. That means the day that you die and you stand before, because as it's very clearly written, it is appointed unto man once to die and then comes the judgment. When you stand before God on that day of judgment, know this, that Jesus' substitutionary work that atoned for you in life will atone for you then, has atoned for you then, better yet. 
that there is no wrath for you there. That intermediate state when we await the, when we await the Lord Jesus' return, that moment where we will be absent from the body yet present with the Lord, but still that glorious bodily resurrection had not yet come. Brothers and sisters, you will be saved from the wrath of God. There is no wrath for you. There is no, as the scripture would say, weeping and gnashing of teeth for you. Why? Because Christ was the one who wept and gnashed his teeth on our behalf. There is no wrath. Secondly, we are saved from the wrath of God at his return. Brothers and sisters, you think of that day and know how that day should indeed cause us to quake a bit. That day of wrath, that day of glory, that day of dread, and it's always dependent, what you call it, based upon your position because the saint of God looks at that day when the Lord Jesus returns for his bride and we say, oh, what a day of glory. He will come for us. He will rescue us. He will redeem us. And if you find yourself for just a moment quaking, be reminded of this great reality. He shall save you from the wrath of God. The justification that Jesus accomplished has been applied. That means when he comes, when he returns, that we are not those who shrink back. We are those who rejoice. Because the Lord Jesus has come for his people. We are saved from the wrath of God. We are saved from the wrath of God in this life, in the intermediate state, in his return. And lastly, we are saved from the wrath of God in eternity. You think of that. And I know that many of you perhaps had these moments where you consider the absolute fearfulness and dread of that state of hell of being separated eternally from him, of experience only his wrath and fury. Brothers and sisters, as you consider that, and as you ponder it, and as you think of my, the, the, the pain, the suffering that goes there, know this, it is not for you. Why? Because Jesus justifies by his blood. Jesus experienced that so that you might never. You think of that fearful place. You think of even that moment of, the story of Lazarus and the rich man. And the rich man says, ah, but a drop of water on my tongue. Lazarus looks across and says, ah, there's a great chasm between you and I. And then perhaps you think of his thirst as he would dwell there eternally, separated from the loving kindness of God, experiencing only his wrath. And then you hear our Lord cry from the cross, I thirst. And you know this, you will never experience the agony that inspired those words because Christ drank the cup of God's wrath. There is no more wrath for us. We are saved from the wrath of God. Indeed, much more are we saved from the wrath of God because we have been justified by his blood. So perhaps to conclude these to this point, since Jesus' work of propitiation satisfied the wrath of God for me, much more now in his application am I certain that I will be saved from the wrath to come. Jesus accomplished the work. By his grace, he applied it. And I have all the more confidence that he will indeed save me from the wrath to come. And then lastly, since Jesus' work came to me while I was a sinner, much more will it stay with me now that I am redeemed. It is mine because he has accomplished all that was necessary and then applied it. He applied it to me. So much more indeed are we saved by his, saved from the wrath of God by his substitutionary death. But then we turn our attention to this next phrase. And it seems as though really what's happening in that previous verse, in verse 9, is the conclusion of the judicial argument. The whole concept of that there is a judge, the judge of all the earth will do what is right, that we have merited to ourselves tribulation and distress, and that Jesus has paid that debt and then applied his payment to, of that debt to us. And then we turn our attention. So that's the conclusion of the judicial argument. And then we turn our attention to this concept of a, of a relational argument because the whole premise of this is that, yes, I'm saved judicially. I'm rescued from the wrath of God. But then he goes a bit further and he argues that there is a deep reconciliation that occurs through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so let's turn our attention to that. 
In verse 10, it goes on. It says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? So the very first thing we need to ask is, what does it mean when it says that we were enemies? Because this is the state in which we were in when the reconciliation of God actually came to us. So what does it mean while we were enemies? Well, I think Romans 3 has already made it abundantly clear to us that it's those who did not seek after God, those who have turned aside and together they have become worthless. Enemies of God are, in essence, God-haters, those who hate him. Perhaps you think, oh, I, I don't know if I love God, but I don't hate him. Please, please, no. If you do not look at him, adore him, beloved him, think that he is the all in all, the greatest splendor and glory and beauty and majesty in all the earth, then, brothers and sisters, you hate him. It is not a middle ground. There is no fence riding in this. There is love or there is, there is hatred. But praise be to God, he takes those that hates them, hates him and reconciles them to himself. So what does it mean that we are enemies? Colossians 1.21 says it in this way. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. So it's not only an opposition of affection, it is also an opposition in action. We hate him with our minds and thus we give way to all types of evil in our daily lives. We are at enmity with him. And it is important for us to realize that enmity means that there is no peaceful word spoken between God and us. He is our enemy. Perhaps worse yet, he is ours. He is our enemy. He would wage war against us, and rightfully so, because we deserve wrath and fury. He is the just judge of all the earth. And if he has not sought out reconciliation, then brothers and sisters, there would be no reconciliation. But praise be to God, his love came to us while we were yet sinners. He reconciled us to himself while we were enemies. And so how then, how is it that God can take these, these wicked men, these sinners, and mind you that the, that the anger, the displeasure of God is on the wicked every day? That's the state in which we're in. And then we have this reconciliation occurring. You have to ask the question, how could this reconciliation even originate in God? And we would have to be reminded that all that brings God's love to us, he finds in himself. He graciously gives it. It is not anything that we have done, for it came to us while we were yet enemies. And he seeks out reconciliation. And you can see all throughout the pages of Scripture that God is always the one who initiates reconciliation. If you would, turn your attention to passages like Genesis chapter 3, when we see Adam dwelling in the harmony with God, delighting in his, delighting in his presence, finding in him his all in all, is tempted. He makes his way to disregard and to disobey God, and he is immediately found in a state of spiritual death. Who is it that begins that interaction of reconciliation? Is it Adam? No, of course it's not Adam. What does Adam do? Adam hides in the brush. I must keep God from me. I must stay far away. But then there is this blessed call, isn't there? Adam, where are you? I don't think we feel the grace in that simple statement. Brothers and sisters, I think we can all agree the omniscient God knew exactly where Adam was. This was not a call of location. It was a call of reconciliation. God in his grace reaches out and says, Adam, where are you? And he begins that great work of reconciliation. God is the initiator of these things. He is the one who starts them and he must start them because if it were left to us, we would always be in enmity. But God in his infinite grace reconciles us while we were enemies. That leads us to the question, how? How can we be reconciled to God? Because I have all of this sin on me. I have all of this wickedness. There is clearly a barrier here. God is angry with the wicked every single day. How is it that I can be reconciled to him, relationally restored? Colossians 1 again lays this out for us quite clearly. 
Colossians 1, 19 through 22. Hear the language. For in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, speaking of our Lord, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or in, whether, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of its cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Brothers and sisters, in just this verse, I go from being at enmity with God, hostile in mind and actions, to then being presented blameless and above reproach before him. What can do that? The cross of Jesus Christ can do that. The cross of Jesus Christ not only can do that, it has done that. And for those of us who have trusted in him by faith, there is no more hostility between God and us. Why? Because Jesus Christ has bore that which caused the hostility. All sin has been conquered. There is nothing that bars us from his presence any longer. And what a great declaration is made when Jesus tears that veil from top to bottom. He says, come in and dwell. Come in and find your hope, your stay, your all in all here. Ultimately, we have been reconciled to God by Jesus' death, and he reconciles us to himself while we were weak, ungodly, wicked sinners. That's when he reconciles us. That's when. That's when that begins. That great work of affection that began in eternity past when he set his love on his bride, he then accomplished while we were yet sinners, while we were enemies. Who does this? Who does this? Are you willing to seek out your enemy to reconcile even though he he still kicks against the goads? He still hates you? Brothers and sisters, the only reason that we have any capacity of this love is because he first loved in this way. You would not know it. It would not be demonstrated in society if it was not first and foremost demonstrated by the Lord Jesus Christ. He shows us this great love and he reconciles us to himself. Now that does lead us to maybe a really important point because previously going all the way back up into verse 1 and 2, there's this concept of peace. And peace with God is the concept of of actual relationship, of actual fellowship. But sometimes I think that when we think of peace, we often think of those enemies that we have, but they're at a distance and we're ultimately not dealing with them on a regular basis. And so you say, well, I'm at peace with them. That is not the peace that God has provided. The peace that God has provided is a complete restoration of relationship, which means that we not only have access to him, but we call him father. You know what a blasphemy it was? for Jesus to go forth in his earthly ministry and say that God is my father? It was reasonable, as as a matter of fact, it was acceptable and right to say that, that God is the father of Israel, collectively. But Jesus went forth claiming it as he's my father. And then he would go on and he would teach us that if we understand what he has accomplished and we understand the relationship of federal headship, which we'll see next week, that we are right to call him my father. The relationship has been so restored that we should and are right to call him Father. And if you think of the familial terms that he gives us for himself, the Lord Jesus Christ would call himself our husband. He would say that through God we are adopted into his family. Not only do you see that in the relationship that is ultimately had between man and God that has been reconciled through Jesus Christ, but you also see it inside of the church that we begin to no longer call each other by any other term except the familial one. Brother and sister has great meaning because we are adopted into the family of God. We all have, by God's grace, the same Father, and we are right to call him mine. And so we have been reconciled, and we have been reconciled to not only a peace at a distance, but a reconciliation that has us dining at his table forevermore. And then there is this same phrase, much more. How is there much more? Again, 
Like I've been reconciled to God while I was an enemy. He reconciled me to himself that I can actually call him father, that he's mine and all this is mine through the finished work of Christ. And then there is this this escalation of blessing, if you will. And he says, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? So two things to understand about this concept of much more again. First, the sin that brought about God's anger has been conquered through Jesus Christ. That is the ultimate reality of Jesus' crucifixion, that all that caused enmity has been dealt with in full. Secondly, because of that, because Jesus has reconciled me to God through his death, I cannot be called an enemy of God any longer. Brothers and sisters, here's the the beauty of this. I am no longer God's enemy. I am his friend. I have been reconciled to him so completely. The relational terms have been completely changed. And so if that's those realities, how then can there be more? Well, the more is ultimately demonstrated by his life. We are reconciled to God through the death of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, we are saved all the more by his life. And if I could bring to mind a couple of works that Jesus, is, Jesus does in his life. We think of Jesus' death often, but brothers and sisters, I think that we are really slow to think of his ministry today because he does have a very active ministry today. If I could give you just a couple, first and foremost, it is, his, it is his intercessory work that continues to save us. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. This is dealing with the priestly ministry of our Lord. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus eternally reigning at the right hand of the Father. That's his throne. And what does he do with his days? He intercedes for his people. To maybe make it a bit more clear, he prays for us. Robert Murray McShane said, if I could hear Jesus praying for me in the next room, I would fear no army. And then he goes on to say, but he is praying for me. The reality is, brothers and sisters, that Jesus is praying for the saints of God. He demonstrates this in passages like John chapter 17 when you see that intercessory work. But here's the reality, that when Jesus finished his earthly work, when he finished his work of death, burial, and resurrection, he took a seat at the right hand of the Father, and he has not stopped being your mediator. He continues that great work, and he will continue that great work all throughout eternity. Romans 8, 34 clarifies this all the more. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Brothers and sisters, know this. There's not a moment of your life where Jesus Christ is not praying for you. He pleads for you. John says that he advocates for you. First John 2, 1 through 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And what does he plead? What is that prayer that he prays over his people? In chapter, in 1 John 2, verse 2, he goes on to clarify, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. What is the ultimate argument from our Lord Jesus Christ? It is his finished work. Here's the reality, going back to the previous text. Yes, we have been saved. We have been justified by the blood of Jesus. And we, we shall be saved from the wrath of, of God. Why? Because we have been reconciled to him in Jesus' death. And being reconciled to him in his life, brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is still reconciling us to the Father, pleading his own blood over us that we might dwell there eternally with him. We have an advocate with the Father. Perhaps the best way to summarize this is to say that in a word, he was in his death, our great high priest in offering atonement for sin. He is now in his life, our everlasting priest, interceding for those he atoned for. He is ever constantly at work. 
What does this ministry look like? As I've already mentioned in John chapter 17, you see his prayer where he prays over his people. He prays that they would be kept. He prayed that they would be holy. He prays unity amongst them. Brothers and sisters, this is the prayer of Christ over his people. He is ever constantly praying these great things over us. But there is one more that I love. And going back to that passage in Colossians 1, it says in verse 21, and you, speaking of those who were in enmity with God, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Now listen to this language. In order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. He intercedes and he not only intercedes, but he presents. And he presents his blessed bride. If you look at passages like Revelation 19 and you see the bride has made herself ready, how? How has she made herself ready? How is she holy before him? It is by his own blood that he cleansed her. And he presents her to himself, as Ephesians would say, as a radiant church without, bri- without, without stain or wrinkle or any such thing. And then there is one much more. And this is the much more that we must understand of those, as those who have been justified by faith, as those who have been justified by his blood, as those who have peace with God. If you notice what the text says, it says rather simply, seemingly, More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Well, what is the much more than? What is what he is about to say? What is it much more than? Well, as you go back up through Romans 5, you see that we rejoice in the grace of God. We consider the finished work of Jesus Christ, it being applied to me, and we rejoice that we have God's riches at Christ's expense. We say, praise be to God. We rejoice in all that he has given to us. We would go further to say we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice knowing that there is a future glorified state where we will dwell eternally with him, that he has made us able to experience the immeasurable riches of his kindness to us throughout eternity, as Ephesians 2 would say. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing what they produce. When you're singing that song of rejoicing in the midst of weeping, when that sorrow strikes and you rejoice, that's what he's saying. What he is about to say is even more than that. We rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice that we've been justified by Jesus' blood. Praise be to God through Jesus' blood. We have been reconciled and saved from the wrath of God. And lastly, we rejoice that we have been reconciled. All of these things are ultimately fruit of the work of Jesus Christ. We rejoice in all of these. We sing praises unto God for all of his accomplishments through Jesus Christ. But that is not the crescendo of our worship. Now, that is staggering to me. The crescendo of our worship is not worshiping God for what he has done. It seems as though in this text, the crescendo of our worship is worshiping the God who is in and of himself. Yes, we look at all of these glorious benefits and we say, praise be to God. I have been justified by faith. I've been justified by his blood. I have peace with God. I have reconciliation. But the sole premise of everything that we have been dealing with is to bring you standing before the throne of God that you might be reconciled to worship him for who he is. The reality is that everything that we have discussed in justification by faith alone is to bring you into the throne room of God that God might receive the worship he is due. Because he deserves the worship of every tongue. He has ransomed you with his blood, yes. But brothers and sisters, the reality is Jesus, God, is worthy of worship alone. If he did not justify, if he did not save, if he did not redeem, if he did not reconcile, he deserves worship, honor, and praise forevermore. And I want you to notice this because it's so clear, more than that, more than anything that we have discussed, and this is ultimately the theme of Paul's ministry, is God be praised. And he says it quite clearly. More than that, we rejoice in God, in himself. Brothers and sisters, this is how we really know if we love the God of the scriptures. Is he worthy of all worship and praise? 
In the midst of your suffering, can you say this is from the good hand of God? And if it's from the good hand of God, then I will worship amidst it. Why? Because he is in and of himself worthy of praise, glory, and honor forevermore. And if it's to sit there savoring the blood of Jesus, then you say, this blood should never have been for me, but here I am. The fruit of that is solely Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. He saves unto the uttermost, but even if he did it, he is God and deserves praise. He is the one that we worship. He is the crescendo of the Christian's worship and delight. And the real reality of everything that we've discussed is to bring you into that throne room that you might experience him and know him rightly. Because without him reconciling us, without the justifying work of Jesus Christ, then you would always be at enmity. You would always curse his name. You would always be far from him. But because of Jesus' finished work, you know him, you know him rightly. And the only lasting and eternal fruit of that is praise the God who is. Now, it is important for us to remember this. You cannot get there apart from Jesus Christ. I want you to notice the text. It's really clear. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that through, through, through our Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot get there. You cannot arrive in that throne room of grace and be welcomed as a son and daughter, as the beloved bride of Christ. You cannot enter into that place apart from the finished work of Jesus Christ. Through him you worship. That is the only way in which God will have his worship. We need a mediator. We need a priest who will intercede for us. And praise be to God, he has provided it in Jesus Christ. And his priestly ministry, his work in life, is infinitely better than the Levitical priesthood where they made sacrifices year after year. Our Lord went to the tree, he satisfied the wrath of God, and he bids us come. And every time we come, We come through his blood. 